Welcome to the Balbury. Working, parenting, playing, voting, advocating, and creating as women. I was very self-deprecating as a young person, very self-effacing. And even as I stepped into the community, I was, I was careful, humble. Now I'm not so humble anymore. I'm trying to show off some of what I can do. And I'm very much, I guess I feel, yes, I have something to add to the conversation. Winds rake across the headlands and disrupt the skies, sucking breath from our noses and mouths. Vultures, gulls, ravens, ravens hang in the sky, riding the thermals, slowly cycling, beaks cocked until wide wings suddenly tip. In the upwelling of air where sea and cliff face meet. This is your host, Suki Wessling. Today's episode features an in-depth conversation with book artist Felicia Rice. Felicia has been a respected letterpress printer throughout her long career, but part of what we talk about is her evolution from thinking of herself as a craftsperson supporting artists to proclaiming herself an artist in her own right. Our conversation is about transformation, the slow transformation of one woman finding her art and herself, the communal transformation of a woman becoming a mother and a community member, the bodily transformation from youth to maturity, and the sudden, unwanted, unexpected transformation through loss. Throughout the conversation, you will also hear sound from Felicia's short film about her book, Heavy Lifting, which was created after her home, studio, and life's work was destroyed in the CZU Lightning Complex fire of 2020. The poetry you will hear is by Teresa Whitehill and Felicia Rice. You can find out more about the film and the book at movingpartspress.com. Here's Felicia. Hi, my name's Felicia Rice. I'm a printer, publisher, and artist. I have been doing my work since 1977. So my press, Moving Parts Press, was set in motion in 1977 in a garage in uh, downtown Santa Cruz, California, I had um, the opportunity to work with some wonderful uh, letterpress printers at that time. I was just a young person, and um, I was inspired to keep on working and create my own workspace, which was Moving Parts Press, where I make artist books. Um, We called them at that time fine press books or fine printing, the very fine craft of letterpress. And uh, over the years, we've Uh, my colleagues and I have moved more and more into the fine arts with our work. And I now call my work artist books, Um, still in limited editions, small editions of maybe 60 or less, but um, very much uh, about the fine craft of letterpress printing, printmaking, the structure of the book, um, and working closely with artists, writers, um, to publish their work in this uh, unusual form. 
Well, welcome and and thanks for that description. I I'd like to start just with a physical, I mean, obviously I'm hoping that everyone goes to your website when after they listen to this or while they're listening to it so they can see what you make because we are using words to talk about something that's visual and and tactile if they ever have the um, wonderful opportunity to actually see your your books in person. Um, so so describe what an artist's book, what the physical object is like. My books um, work on several levels. I'm working with the uh, word and image. Uh, the word is very important to me coming out of a, a literary publishing background, and I it drives my work. It inspires my imagery. Uh, it can be the words of poet, another poet, a writer, uh, art active, an activist, a um, myself. But it does inspire the um, the book structure and the book, the form the book takes. And so you can think of first of words on paper. There will be words on paper in in my work, um, and then you'll see images. I've worked closely with word and image merging the relationship, not simply the image on the left and the type on the right, but um, actually integrating into one another. So experimentation with letter forms and structures, creating my own letter forms um, and moving them through images that I print on my printing press. So my printmaking technique is uh, relief printing. Uh, the ink is laid on the raised surface of some sort and then lifted off onto the paper on a printing press. And I use a Vandercook proof press, which is very, very uh, simple, but also very accurate. Uh, I have a lot of control over what happens. Um, one sheet at a time, one color at a time. So if you see a multicolor page, then that means it's been through the press for the red, for the yellow, for the blue, for the green, and sometimes as many tw as 25 times to get the layering of, of color, ink, and uh, type. Um, the other factor that I keep mentioning or I have mentioned is the paper. So the substrate, what do you print on? Um, books are traditionally printed on paper. Western codexes are printed on paper. And there's all kinds of paper from handmade paper to um, very uh, commercial, commercial grade papers. And I can print on any one of those. But one of the things that's really critical in my work, uh, having come out of the fine craft of letterpress printing, is that there be the paper be archival. So I'm thinking about, is the paper going to be here in 100 years? Is it going to be here in 500 years? Because you know if you leave many papers or even the books you buy at the bookstore these days on your shelf, in a few years the paper has turned brown and eventually brittle. And I like to work in the accordion fold, the uh, uh, accordion fold book structure because um, folded like a fan, it can be extended out and you have a whole uh, freeze of imagery and type. You can stand in front of and see the whole thing or it can be folded down and the folded sheet of pages turned almost like a um, traditional Western codex. So the traditional book we know with the spine on the left and the turning from the right. So I, uh, I work with that structure and I, I also am um, very concerned about book binding. Uh, I am not a book binder. That's an entire craft un into itself. But I have been um, 
really fortunate to work with very fine binders who can do edition work for me um, and uh, produce uh, a limited edition of books that um, are carefully crafted and um, absolutely set my work off to the best possible, um, best possible possible. So when you work with a bookbinder and you're doing an accordion binding, you're printing sheets that then they bind together in accordion fold? Yes, I, they, I print the sheets and then they're bound together, hinged end to end to create a long, you know, it could be a 14 foot accordion when it's fully extended, but the sheets themselves might be just two feet wide, 24 inches, and they're um, uh, hinged together um, end to end. It's kind of mysterious. You hide the hinges and people think, how is this possible? But it's, it's very, very possible. And um, so that uh, in the end, I'll have, like I say, a 14-foot book or a 15-foot book or an 8-foot book or, you know, um, but uh, it's really exciting to have that full extension of the book visible. And um, it very, uh, it can happen, especially if the books are loosely um, folded so that the, mm -hmm. uh, the, there's space. I mean, the problem for exhibiting a work like this is having enough space and, uh, that helps to sort of loosely fold it back in on itself. And, and yet, uh, standing up is also really fantastic. Stand the book on its, on its foot and then, um, extend it out as much or as little as you want. And people can really see and walk around, see what's on the back. Cause it's not just printed on one side. I um I noticed on your website you have a 360 degree view of your latest book which I did and I highly recommend to listeners that they go do it cuz it's very cool. So you mentioned that you're very much inspired by the words of the people that you work with and it's it's interesting to me the the relationship the collaboration between you someone who works with such a physical medium and people who work in words. And what do you look for in the words that you choose? What, what is it that attracts you to a written text and says, this will be one of my books? Yeah, collaboration is so key to my um, practice and has been um, the center of it since I started in 1977. And it's Previously, we would have called it an editor-author um, relationship, and then um, through time, since I think flat, I don't think hierarchically, I think flat in how I work with the others, um, I started to call it a collaborative relationship. But oftentimes, the collaborations are not uh, have take different forms. So uh, a collaboration might be linear. The author gives me a manuscript. I walk away and do something with that manuscript, create printed pages, set type, use that to inspire images, which then roll back to the type and it starts to morph. And But the writing doesn't change necessarily. So it's very linear. The writer gives me a manuscript, I publish it. That would be the most traditional relationship. And then sometimes when I've been working with artists, it's the same thing. The writing and the art come into me 
And um, each one may have been working in their own silo, but when it comes to me, I'm putting it together. Someone's described me as the conductor. Um, so that's a producer role, keeping a project rolling. Some of my projects have, one of my projects took seven years with five collaborators, um, five years, four years. Uh, but the um, idea has been to bring it all together into an integrated whole. So uh, when we think of word, image, come together to create an integrated whole. And the, the words that I select, um, uh, historically, I would have respected the writers. Um, <laughs> I would have respected the writer and just published everything, put everything they gave me on the page uh, to represent them, their voice as clearly as possible in, in the work. Um, more recently, I've just been cherry picking what I like from the manuscript that people have given me. And the book um, uh, could have more or less text, but um, I usually I'll make sure the text is somewhere in the project, either by printing a companion book with the full suite of poems that the poet submitted or a, a separate uh, couple of sheets with the full poem. But in my own images, I'm, I'm really cherry picking things. It's like prompts, prompts for writers or um, prompts um, that the words inspire something uh, uh, and it starts to um, not be one image, but rolling into another. And what is their relationship, the two images, and how does that carry the voice of the writer and the um, viewer, uh, hold the viewer's attention as you move through. I'm speaking with book artist Felicia Rice, publisher of Moving Parts Press. So this is, I guess, a more of a technical question before we get back to the philosophical questions of what you do. So you work also with artists. What do they give you, given your printing process, which is an ancient process of putting ink on a raised relief and, and pressing it against a flat surface. How do you integrate artists' work? What do they give you and how do you, what do you do with it to be able to create your prints? Yeah. Well, since my story is so long, I've been doing this since I was 19 and I'm 68. Um, there was an entire period where I was working with um, artists to create uh, illustrations. We, we never called them illustrations. It was very legitimate um, responses to the, not simply in ser uh, service to the word. But um, I worked with artists in that sense, giving me drawings, giving me um, images ready to go to press, meaning not prepared for printing, but um, one step before that, I'd have to create the raised surface, but they would have drawn or whatever that I could um, turn into printing. But um, in the last, and it's true, in the last 20, over 20 years, I've been using my own images um, and very rarely anyone else's images, really challenging myself to, um, to uh, produce work that is, um, comes from from my own sense of what's appropriate. So that has been, that was a big, slow transition for me, something I could have done 
much earlier in my life. And um, it took to a certain point where I just stepped off from the uh, printer um, publisher, publisher of artists, publisher of writers, to publisher of my own sense of things. And um, the words are generally someone else's still, although in my most recent book, I wrote a poem and published it in the book, which I, I, I hadn't done before. Um, out of a sense, maybe of propriety, vanity publishing. I don't know. Uh, I'm not a poet. Uh, I, yeah. You know, um, being aware of the different roles that can be played in this process, since I'm the, the book is my medium, and there are different players in that. There's the writer, the artist, the uh, printmaker or printer. There's the designer. There's the bookbinder. There's the, all these roles that can be played. And I have, um, at a certain point in my life, I started out gangbusters as a teenager. Like, certainly I can do all these things. Look at this. I walk into this room of beautiful type with silver um, letter forms and uh, books about history and sociology and social politics of cultural politics. And I'm like a pig in heaven. But there was a point uh, I had to realize that I couldn't wear all the hats. I couldn't be the papermaker and the bookbinder and the, and the, and the, and the, I would have to restrict myself. So I restricted myself to three artist, printer, and publisher. And the artist is the newest calling myself an artist as opposed to a printer for decades. We called ourselves printers in this uh, small press or fine printing or, you know, world. And, um, it was a fine, uh, craft, but also a very proud one. And we wore the name, you know, very, very proudly. Um, but, uh, gradually, uh, that became more of an, an artist's role. And, um, and then also the printer, as I say, printer, artist, printer, um, letterpress printer, handsetting type, 19th century technology going back centuries and century, centuries of values that have to do with that archival properties and the history of typefaces and um, typography comes into play there, the study of type and the history of letter forms. And um, then uh, publisher, which has been a charge that I took on very seriously, very young, and I, um, and that is getting the word out. So these aren't books that um, although in a very small edition, go and sit in, in collections around the uh, country and across the globe, they are um, meant to be viewed. And these are public collections and people can go in and see this seems rarefied, still very tucked away, but at least it's not just one. That's one thing, not just one painting on one wall, but also I try to make a trade edition or, or a popular edition of every book that can be handled by bookstores. And truly at this point, books themselves are a rarefied object. Um, they are not a part of every day. They are not a, a part of everyday use in, this, in the way that they have, had been formerly. White caps rise and stagger across the impassive plain of the sea. I lean out in free fall then pump my strange new wings.
You've been listening to The Balbury. We'll be back after this short break. You are listening to The Balbury. This is your host, Suki Wessling. I've been speaking with book artist Felicia Rice, publisher of Moving Parts Press, about her work. We now move to explore her childhood, her changing relationship to her art and her community, motherhood, and the wrenching loss that forced a new chapter in her life. I um, come from a family of artists. My mother was a strong feminist and a, and active politically. I, my first memories are holding my dad's hand in a civil rights march in Richmond in the early 60s. Um, we, we marched and we were different. You know, I grew up in a, outside a suburb of San Francisco and we, we didn't live in the tract homes. We were different. And so being an outsider was a very common, it was very comfortable for me, almost too comfortable, you know, because you push yourself to the edge always, you know, and it's important to, to feel community and become part of something. So both my parents as artists and my mother as a strong feminist, I had two sisters who were older. We were just, the expectation was to be a creative. The expectation was to grow and bloom and find as much happiness as possible and and to be for my mother um very much uh, a creative artist visual artist so i was in training from when i was tiny going she was a children's art teacher and i was in her classes and so when i chose to be a printer in my teens it was almost like putting my foot down and saying no you know, I'm going to be a craftsperson. I'm going to understand. And so crafts in the 70s were super, super important. We were on a mission to save dying crafts from oblivion, um, fighting against consumer culture, creating things by hand one at a time. So that's where I started. And not without um, my parents' support, but... um, I just think that my mom would have been so happy if she could have um, been a part of this stage in my work, but she passed away a dozen years ago, so she missed this part. My grandmother's house was built as a long series of rooms, of which the first, the entry, was almost unfurnished, except for a single rug a large, thick, soft rug of a deep burgundy color. Although in other memories, it is an enormous, multicolored rag rug. Such is the way of memory. You describe your upbringing as being comfortable with being an outsider How do you think that influenced you as a young adult? It's a kind of a painful topic, you know, that outsider bit business, the um, not feeling part of, of even the movements that I was a part of, you know, still feeling like an observer 
And, and an observer, you know, there was when my son was young, they called him an outside watcher coming in. And that's very much, you know, what it is. You stand and watch. And if you see something you like, then you might join in and then you can step back again. So you have this agency. You're not getting sucked into some sort of groupthink. But on the other hand, holding that distance, holding that space always um, is uh, kind of exhausting, you know. Um, um, ha keeping all your options open was another, you know, message, strong message. And keeping all those balls in the air, the plates spinning all the time, is um, really not possible, you know. And so... <laughs> It take, took me a long time to learn, and it wasn't an easy lesson that it's not possible to do all things and, and expect oneself also to do them well. And it sounds like a natural progression, like just flowed, but um, it was a hard lesson. It was hard to learn. And so now I, I'm, I am just so grateful for uh, to be able to, to, to do the work that I think is the most important to me. When your parents were both alive and still doing their work, you, as a younger adult, worked with both of them separately on projects. Can you describe why you wanted to support your parents' work and what, what it was like for you as an adult and as this person that you're describing who was not completely comfortable being an outsider working back in your parents' world? That I was, um, I've always honored my teachers. So um, a sense of history is really important to me. And I was sort of one of the family historians. I have honored each of my teachers in some way. And my parents were my first teachers. And I think one of the hardest things for those who know me to suss out or to um, real, it's important to realize that they were my first teachers. And so when the in the feminist community, the maternal figure arises and the young women all flock to her because she's such a much nicer mother than their mother, I had a nice mother. I had a really strong, nice mother and I had a really good dad. So I don't carry trauma from my childhood, and I also don't need a replacement. I'm not looking for a teacher. So when my parents, um, when my dad came into my work, was I was in my earliest phase of working with Chicano artists, and I was the artist for the publication that I was doing. I was still working with artists and writers very closely, and the artist fell through. So... One of the things about my parents' story that I carry on in my own way is that they came from New York as young people with two tiny children to go to um, Mexico to uh, work with the uh, muralist um, Siqueiros. So my father was um, a painter and he went to work with Siqueiros, but he had these two young children and they almost died um, almost immediately upon arriving in San Miguel de Allende and they had to... Um, um, retreat to the Western United States. And that's one of the ways, reasons why my folks from the East Coast wound up in California. And I was born later, but um, these were the stories of their lives and their friends were former apprentices of 
uh, Diego and my mother spent the afternoon with Frida Kahlo and um, all this lore, all these stories came into my exit, into my awareness. So I was starting on this Chicano uh, series, which was out of a deep curiosity about what my generation uh, of um, Latinx artists were doing in this country, having heard the stories about their generation, what happened to all that? Where are those people? Where, where is that thinking? I was able to uh, start a book project, but the artist fell through. And so I said to my dad, what can you do with this? And he was a really hard worker, and he immediately jumped into this project and produced these beautiful, beautiful drawings for the book De Mor Oscuro of Dark Love, 16 homoerotic loves uh, poems by Francisco X. Alarcón. So that um, was one of my first books in that series, and I, I loved working with him. It was so important as a step to be brought into the adult world as a peer and partner. You also, to this day, are keeping up your mother's legacy as a pioneer in, um, in mushroom dyeing. Is that correct? My mom was amazing. And I've landed here in Mendocino in the town that my parents lived in for over 30 years and um, 40 years. She's well known in the community, as is my dad. It's really great to be here. My mom was... Um, well known here. And in a way for the last few years, especially before my studio was built, I felt like I was Miriam in a Felicia suit. You know, I looked like me, but I was living her life, you know, and, and, and going to the things, the concerts that she would have loved to be at and doing the things that she would have loved to do and did do. And, um, so it's a lot to carry. I think, uh, women, um, who have strong mothers, people who have strong mothers carry, a lot of their um, dreams, you know, dreams for you as the child, but also dreams for themselves, perhaps vicariously living. I think ideally my mother would have loved that each of her three daughters lived in another part of the globe so she could go visit, uh, you know, travel that way. And there were other things I can tell you exactly what she wanted, you know, and it took me a long time to first, I had to get it that I had um, absorbed her expectations, and they were now my expectations for myself. And then, after accepting that um, guideposts for life, that kind of thing, I had to sort of realize that some of them I couldn't do; that it was way too much, and and um, that I didn't necessarily need to do all of them. So. That was that was my experience of having a, a, a strong, um, amazing mother. I'm speaking with book artist Felicia Rice, publisher of Moving Parts Press. Although many female artists fear that motherhood will take away from their art, Felicia speaks of her mothering years as formative to her self-image as an artist. It, I became a stepmom when I was in my latter 20s. And that son is now almost 50. And then I became a birth mom in my early 30s. So stabilizing, I, I was all about stabilizing um, my life. And I don't, I didn't have the personality for a wildly unstable life. Uh, so I often ask myself, why was it so important? I mean, 
nature nurture, okay, I didn't have the personality for a wildly unstable life, like gallivanting, off running. I mean, I did do my share of traveling, but um, I was always looking for something that I could stick with when I was young, something I could really commit to. One of the things I committed to was my stepson. Um, He was only six when he came into my life. I came into his life. And um, no matter how frustrated I got with his father, there was a double commitment there. And I was committed to him uh, and his welfare as well. So now, you know, 40 plus years later, we are still in relationship and we, um, and that's so important to me. Um, And then with my birth son at 33, I really had to shift my focus from myself and my work even more, a lot more to the care of an infant and a young child. And that went on for many, many years. Um, I was also uh, dreaming really big, very driven, trying to do it all in those years. I think of my 30s as sort of like my best years because they were really, really hard and really stretching me. And I was working very, very hard, but I had the energy and um, I did not have the energy later. It was just almost like a blooming, a flourishing, you know, of, of time where uh, I somehow seemed to be able, I didn't question that I could juggle all that. Later I questioned it, but um, my boy was um, so much fun, so much, uh, so funny and and such a great companion. Um, We were joined at the hip there for uh, many years. And I just recently um, made a film to accompany my new book, and uh, heavy lifting. And the film has sound that my son, who is a a composer and producer of sound music, um, so he recorded poets reading and and mixed them in with sound and created this beautiful soundtrack for this short film. It was like a, a godsend to have him there knowing exactly what to do with ideas, in sympathy with the writing, understanding my process, you know, so grateful at that time for it and so proud of the work we did together. Heavy lifting. This is the pause I am flying in, flying hard so as not to fall to earth. Apparently grief is not a calm, but a huge effort. Letter from a friend. Heavy lifting. In 2020, the CZU Lightning Complex fire started in the Santa Cruz Mountains. You had a studio and a home up there. Could you start by describing what that was like? Because it's a different experience with everyone, but what I thought about when I was thinking about that is that you work in paper. And fire is the absolute arch enemy of paper. Yes, I um, didn't think ever that I I wouldn't be there when the fire swept through. I felt that fire was imminent. It was um, hot, too hot, too dry, 
too many people, too much unconscious behavior, and it was imminent. So when the fire hit, I happened to be here in Mendocino uh, taking some time in uh, the family home before uh, between tenants, and I was about to rent it again and come back after giving myself you know, a, a self-imposed residency, artist residency here. My husband was in the house, but actually no one that I know in the neighborhood, which was leveled, um, 20 out of 21 houses is how I calculate it, thought that this was the fire that was going to take everything. So even if you had, you know, your secondary to go box that you packed the last time you had to, you know, evacuate, you didn't take it, you know. So I had, in hindsight, I would have marked some of my books with a pink sticky and said, maybe to my husband, take these if I'm not here, or I would know to take those because in my right mind, I had determined. But whenever I would think about it, I'd think, well, I can't uh, really know how much space I'm going to have. So I'll just fill the car with what, everything I can from my archive of books and um, inventory, right? And then my shop would just have to go, which was 45 years of printing equipment, and t- including 200 cases of absolutely gorgeous European type. I had inherited a, printer, a print shop from a small shop from one of my Um, teachers. So I was ready to let all that go, but there were some of my books that I just felt. And so, but I hadn't put the pink stickies and he had to rush and it all was gone. Every last bit. And there was something so final about it. um, And so clean and purification, fire is purification. Um, that I just couldn't fight it, like emotionally. There was just, I didn't have a leg to rail against it, you know, feel, feel, you know, destroyed by it. There was just no way I had to um, pick up knowing that I could um, move on and uh, rebuild our household and um, build a new studio. Almost immediately, a colleague started a GoFundMe. And he said, what about a GoFundMe? And I said, would you do it? Because I could not have written the introductory descriptive material or figured out the app at the time. So we did, he did. And wow, the outpouring of support was something I could not have anticipated. I had no idea. It felt like the goodwill of the many, many, many people that I had come in contact with over 40 years was um, just flowing out in this way. You've been listening to The Balbury. We'll be back after this short break. You are listening to The Babbler. This is your host, Suki Wessling. I've been speaking with book artist Felicia Rice, publisher of Moving Parts Press, about her work and life that led up to the one night that changed everything. In August 2020, Felicia's home and studio were destroyed in the CZU Lightning Complex fire. 
Much of her life's work, including a work in progress, was transformed in seconds from the vibrant portrait of an artist's evolution to ash. Felicia was in Mendocino that night, ironically preparing her childhood home for new renters, not knowing that she and her husband would be the next tenants. The fire wrenched an artist from her community and destroyed her work, but it did not destroy her will to create art born from community. At the same time that she was rebuilding her life, literally building a new studio, Felicia created the book Heavy Lifting with her collaborator, poet Teresa Whitehill. In this last section of our conversation, we'll discuss the book, the process of sharing it with her communities, and her feeling of having evolved from outside watcher to someone who can, in the long tradition of printers and publishers, join to make a more just society. Yes, we had forgotten. No, we could not hold all the memories at once. Yes, we were ourselves mothers, sometimes sons, infants, grandfathers. And in the face of this, we were also empty. We were criminals, victims, those who explain things, those who justify things, those who suffer. The playgrounds were not just vacant, they were crisscrossed with police tape. In this great can you describe the process, what, what happened with heavy lifting? Because that was not the book you were planning to do next, right? Well, I had just published in June, and this happens in August, uh, a book called The Necropolitics of Extraction. And it was with an activist, uh, art historian activist, um, T.J. Demos, who teaches at UC Santa Cruz. My relationship with UC Santa Cruz was really deep, very long. You know, from being a student to being an employee for 20, almost 25 years to being an instructor to um, having collaborative relationships with various members of the faculty and students through um, projects we did together. So TJ was um, one of the last, the last book that I had just done with um, within that community. And it was a departure from the uh, Chicanic series I'd been doing. And it was hard for me to depart because I had been so focused for so long, but I had left my desk. I'd retired from my administrative job at UC Santa Cruz and I had a lot more time. And um, it seemed like I could do not just one editorial focus, but I could work on another project that wasn't the same. So the necropolitics of extraction is really about um, climate change and extraction uh, of resources, including human resources around the globe. So it was ironic that that edition was destroyed by the fire. Yeah. And then I was looking for a poet and um, Teresa Whitehill, who's a Mendocino poet and letters press printer had, I'd known her for decades, but she had sent me a poem that she wrote for me about me for the um that i had given a talk at at, in, at the legion of honor in san francisco and she had been there so she wrote a poem and um there was a verse a line a verse in it that was so powerful for me i felt she absolutely nailed me that i wanted that in my book and I wanted to work with her. So we started working very closely in collaboration, but then the fire hit like, boom, boom, the fire was, and I was in Mendocino, so was she. So this partial journey, you might complete it. There's no guarantee. You will map the energy of the gods to the little that you have been able to pin down, and you will be proud of your energy and your love. 
your energies and your loves, your lovely energy, your proud love, your willingness to mingle in the halls of the dead, bringing the dead treasures that cause their eyes to light up, putting smiles back on faces that have lost flesh. You will speak to birds. That's from a poem titled The Loveliness of Mistakes by Teresa Whitehill. That's really beautiful. I can see how that would spark your your interest and and also send you on this 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 you said so this partial journey journey your your book that burned it in a sense was a partial journey and you got to start over so tell us about about heavy lifting and what this book is and um how maybe how losing everything if if it changed you or your process at all well heavy lifting is a uh in collaboration with Teresa, um, a response to my fire from my um, my my experience of um, well, you know, I have to read you my poem in the book because this is the setup for the um, for the book. This one is called "Here." Winds rake across the headlands and disrupt the skies, sucking breath from our noses and mouths. Vultures, gulls, ravens hang in the sky, riding the thermals, slowly cycling, beaks cocked, until wide wings suddenly tip. In the upwelling of air where sea and cliff face meet, healthcare and housing, crises of immigration, racism, politics, prisons, plundering communities, ravaging our lives. Whitecaps rise and stagger across the impassive plain of the sea. I lean out in freefall, then pump my strange new wings. So this is my experience of arriving in a new place where the wind is powerful, where the birds that I would see every day were the vultures, the ravens, and the sparrows that I include in my book, in my drawings. At the same time as I was landing in this new place, pump my strange new wings, I was also assaulted, as we all were, by um, the many crises that we were experiencing collectively, the experience of COVID, the lack of health care, the state of immigration policies, the horrific conditions in prisons. The uh, and, and I was able to call out eight things. And I you know, we can, these things are always going on way before uh, COVID hit and suddenly we were um, reading about them maybe more carefully in the media or the writers of the media were focusing in and thanks God revealing, I mean, George Floyd's murder. Um, so my aim with this book was to fix or to note these things and respond to them and create a document of this time that would help inform our imagined future what what the future might be it does it teresa went close more quickly <laughs> to what there being a future i i i it's a pretty dark book i got but in the companion book she, there's a suite of 14 poems, and she she led us to um, House of Water, House of Light, House of Feathers. I could live in a house. 
And it's a long poem. It's very rhythmic. I could live in a house like this. I could live in a house like that. And you, that's the future, the house I could live in. So um, she went there and I was like, too soon, too soon. I can't do that. But um, the book has that element to it, trying not to be simplistic about it uh, because our future is so uncertain. Um, and yet it seems very important to have find hope um, that seems critical to the human condition. So um, we, I produced this book in an edition of 60 and we made it a, a companion book a, a, with the full suite of poems and essays, the backstory, that kind of thing, bios. And then that's in a larger edition that travels with the, with the limited edition, but also goes out into the world in its own right. And um, we create, I created a film. We created a film that um, is really represents the theater of my mind as I'm making this book, sort of layered imagery and the sound of the poetry. And then um, created us, uh, we're doing a heavy lifting listening tour so we're taking the book, taking the film, we're taking the um, poetry out into the community. Most immediately, Mendocino County is three times the size of Rhode Island, so it's huge. It's very rural, undeveloped, and the population centers are scattered widely. So we're taking the heavy lifting to people as opposed to expecting them to come to some central location. I'm speaking with book artist Felicia Rice, publisher of Moving Parts Press. These are events where we invite poets to come and read to these themes, or people in the audience can read or speak on the themes. And each event has its own quality, its own character. The first one was in a the Casper Shul, which is the heart of the Jewish community here on the Mendocino Coast. And it's also a little former white church. So it's just a small, simple room. And the day we had it, it was pouring rain, just bucketing rain. We put out a beautiful snaky table that I have, and the book was on display in the room filled, even on that rainy day. And somehow the entire conversation became about grief. Um, so loss and recovery, crisis and renewal. People needed to talk about grief. That was very, very moving. And all this is very selfish on my part because I get to process my feelings. The next time we met, it was in a community center, in a community room of a tiny little public library in Point Arena. And there were about half as many people and um, yet the room felt full. This time, because the film includes voices of the Lake County Poet Laureate Georgina Marie Guardado, but also... Um, a young woman, um, Sydney Regalbrugge, and she lives in Point Arena. So Sydney, 16, she came. She's the Mendocino County Youth Poet Laureate. So she came and she read one of her poems. It was to her mom and her mom was in the audience. And it was so personal, so intimate that I couldn't look at her mother while she was reading. And she finished this beautiful, beautiful poem, um, powerful poem, and then at the end, Sydney invited up her dad and they got up and read alternating verses. And the feeling that I had was of generational hope, a next, the next generation carrying us forward. 
You said something that I thought was really striking in it, and I feel like it sums up our conversation and what you've said about yourself. You you described it as very selfish on my part. <laughs> but what I see is you're the self-described outsider in your young adult years, uncomfortable, not not stepping into the community, not being the person that you were you feel like you should be and now you are you're stepping out of your studio you are inviting other people into the art by sharing their own words and feelings and so it seems like you have this book has has done something what would you say that thing is well i was very self-deprecating as a young person very self-effacing and even as I stepped into the community, I was, I was careful, humble. Now I'm not so humble anymore. I'm trying to show off some of what I can do. And I'm very much, I, I guess I feel, yes, I have something to add to the conversation. The artist responds to what's around them. I want to be part of the conversation. I've always wanted to be part of the conversation, the cultural, the exchange, the social, the political. The And at this point in my life, um, if not now, when? I mean, it really is important that I speak up. Plus, I've got that little zing of testosterone from being in my 60s, and I really love it. So that's that's what I'm feeling. There feels like there's some pressure to produce. I certainly felt that in making heavy lifting, some real pressure to get it out there in terms of its timeliness, but also in terms of my mortality. At the same time, I can't really pull off another heavy lifting right away. You know, I have to uh, really consider. I think my next book will be very simple. It's not something that I want to, um, I want, I, I don't, I, mm, I don't know. Just for me is not right. Cause none of this is just for me. That's not what compels me. Something that is much more, um, out of this time now, uh, again, grounding in the present and assessing, I guess that's where the work is going. I have lived in a house of mirrors. As a child, I thought, that's, that's what, what I wanted, wanted to be when I grew up. A house in which we laugh and giggle and forget for a while what is fear. I could live in this house of memory, even though nobody I ever knew or was kin to had such a memory, even if the memories are sad. Perhaps, especially if they are sad, because, because this, this is, is a sad, sad time, time we, we live in. in. And if you are here, moon, star, blanket, gathering the memories with welcoming gestures, I could, I could live, live in, in this house. house where memory is welcome. 
as a printer, my job is to confront complex issues and render my response in book form. As an artist, my job is to do so with profound integrity. As a publisher, my job is to make these issues public. As printers have done every decade since Gutenberg, I'm here to argue for a more just society. Free fall, then pump my strange new wings. been listening to a conversation with book artist Felicia Rice from Moving Parts Press. All audio clips were from her book and film, Heavy Lifting, with poetry by Teresa Whitehill and Felicia Rice and music by Will Rice. Learn more about the book and Felicia's work at movingpartspress.com. You've been listening to The Balbury. Subscribe to The Balbury on your favorite podcast platform or visit B-A-B-B-L-E-R-Y.com to access more episodes. The Babbleery is produced with support from KSQD Radio in Santa Cruz, California. 